This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh, brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. Hello, everyone. Welcome to HRT. I am Bethany Adams, one of your two hosts this season, joined by Helen Nelson as co-host. And I love HRT, but truth be told, I am still a coffee drinker. On today's episode of HRT, Helen and I sat down with Evan Thornburg. Evan currently works for the city of Philadelphia and has had a very prominent role working in a variety of DEI spaces for the city of Philadelphia. Prior to her work in Philly, she earned a BA in American Studies and Civilization, which gave her a very unique background in understanding both government and American history, and particularly the African-American experience within our American history. Evan has been working in youth, HIV, and LGBTQ advocacy most of her life and volunteering in this space for a very long time. Her consulting work has allowed her to see many organizations and the challenges faced for our marginalized youth, particularly those in the LGBTQ community. And as we started this interview with Evan, I asked her to share a little bit about her current position for the city of Philadelphia. So let's drop in there. I got the opportunity to serve as the deputy director for the mayor's office of LGBT affairs. So I did that consulting work and project-based work for about three years and then was hired as the deputy director. And then I was offered a position that they had designed for my skill set as the director of training and workforce development in the office of DEI in the mayor's office. And then during the pandemic, I was kind of what I like to say is coached by the health department. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of earlier on, somewhere around like June, May or June, they contacted me and said, you know, we have this new huge grant for ending the HIV epidemic. And we've built in the special health equity advisor position where your whole focus will be just marginalized and vulnerable populations. I was happy to take that job. And that's where I am now. I know when I first met you, I got to hear you talk and share kind of probably a lot of what you did for the mayor's office in DEI training. So you were just sort of sharing with the Philly Sherm group about some of the DEI stuff that you were doing. And I'm curious if you have, I I always like to call them soapboxes, but do you have a DEI soapbox? box, like something within this space, because the DEI space is, is expansive. There's so many topics, so many platforms, so many things that you can get passionate and excited about, but some particular topic that just gets you so fired up, either positive or negative. What is that DEI soapbox for you? So my soapbox, I would say, has three topics. And those topics are making sure things are intersectional. I know that's like a fun buzzword right now, or not maybe not right now, but it is for a lot of people without like a true honest understanding of it. But like really things are as uniquely intersectional as that concept relates. I think with DEI, one of the things that I've really, really always struggled with is seeing people 
have very myopic approaches to things or very this that approach to things i it happens with race issues all the time right where we're like black and white and i'm just like Mm -hmm. there are other people that are very expansive in there like we can talk about the history and the trauma of slavery for black people but we also need to talk about the history and trauma of internment camps for japanese people right and how that still plays into a lot of Asian folks, even those who don't identify as Japanese, their experience here, right? We have to talk about a variety of things. We have, to, we have to mention and understand the plight and the ongoing issues around Indigenous folks. And so I find that with DEI folks, it becomes very kind of like, how can we help Black people? And I'm just like, that is super important because we understand the largest amount of or a certain amount of oppression and issues relate to black and white tension, but it is very much erasure of other folks. And then on top of that, black people are dynamic. One of the things I love saying is how this one journalist and writer, Ture, wrote this book called Who's Afraid of Postmodern Blackness? And his opening line in the preface says, if there's 43 million black people in America, there's 43 million ways to be black. And so we have to stop talking about Blackness as a monolith of experience and a monolith of identity, that people are Black and queer, people are Black and immigrant, people are Black and undocumented, people are Black and have a disability, people are Black who have a disability, who are immigrants who speak as, you know, English as a second language, who deal with weight bias, like all of those people exist. And so even if we're dealing with Black issues, what are Black issues? And Black issues are also queer issues, immigrant issues. So DEI gets very myopic in that way. The other thing is people not being up to date. So being up to date is super, super important to me. And then knowing the difference between someone who's a DEI expert and someone who's passionate about DEI issues is a huge one. I, when I end up in a lot of like invited to like DEI spaces, I'll answer questions or ask questions based on research I've recently consumed. And a lot of people's responses are based inside of subjective experiences. And I'm like, that doesn't really answer my question. I don't mean to be rude, but what you've seen at your PTA meeting in regards to like black parents is not necessarily answer to my question about maternity mortality rates. And that's different. So knowing the difference between someone and, and also with hiring and knowing the difference between someone who knows about DEI and isn't just passionately a person of color or passionately LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. And not to assume that those people know about each other either, right? I've met a lot of people who had very little competency around LGBTQ identity. And I've met a lot of LGBTQ folks who have very little low competency around people of color. And so don't conflate them. Yeah. I'm curious, given your answer to that question and your new remit with the health department, what part of that soapbox do you feel like you you stand on or apply weight to the most just in terms of how quickly information gathering and information dissemination needs to happen and sometimes not in that order in particular for like COVID real-time issues that need to get out with I feel like the adoption rate of the public's ability to understand equity in certain spaces is juvenile is infantile not juvenile right and so and now you're in the space where Equity comes into play, but there's also just this need of, you know, getting out to the masses and addressing them and supporting them in real ways. So like, how do you reconcile that, you know, and and also like, as soon as things come out, they're old, right? Just in terms Mm -hmm. of like guidance and even in, in how we're 
able to understand and address things in a pandemic and then couple that with, again, folks growing kind of in the in their comfort level and adoption of DEI issues. What part of that soapbox is getting worn out? And part of that soapbox that gets worn out is kind of an offshoot of the staying up to date, which is also gather good data. The most dangerous thing about DEI data is that if you don't collect it well or right, you run the risk of someone who is antithetical or who is opposed vehemently or even not vehemently, but strongly to equity endeavors getting a hold of it and being able to weaponize it. So this is why I say intersectionality is super important because let's say, for instance, you decide to do an assessment of your workplace and you decide it's a, it's a race-based assessment. In Philadelphia, 65% of the, the, the population is people of color. We don't have a minority population as, as, it, as it relates to the national understanding, right? People of color in Philadelphia, particularly Black people specifically, are the majority population in Philadelphia. That does not mean that people of color or Black people are not disenfranchised. But what it means is, is that if I'm not thinking critically around things like the division of leadership and entry-level positions, if I'm not looking critically at gender, if I'm not looking critically at LGBTQ identity or disability, I'm going to miss a vast amount of systemic bias in just doing a, a, a race assessment. And if you are not doing good data collection, is going to lend itself to those mistakes because you're going to assess an office or a company or a business, and they're going to come back and be like, hey, you know, 73% of our, our staff are people of color. That makes sense, depending on your business. But if 73% of your staff are people of color, but 87% of your leadership is white, that's when we start to get into an issue or there's no women or all of those spaces are uncomfortable or you've had a high turnover rate for people with disabilities. We have to think critically in that. So data collection is as important because someone who's opposed to equity work is going to get that report back and be like, 73% mm, of our staff are people of color, we're fine. And so I think that's the thing that's getting worn out for me is as we're kind of everything with COVID especially is kind of like we're, we're kind of chasing the tail. And in doing that, people kind of start to like peel off the things that they're not competent at and start to default to their usual practices. And that's where I have to kind of keep being like, wait, wait a minute, we should make sure that we're trying to collect this data. And how do we make it for certain folks, you know, anonymous, but we still need to know, am I going to know how many LGBTQ people have been affected by or tested positive for COVID or have gotten sick? Am I going to know about undocumented residents? These things are super important for us because tracking or we're not somehow safely collecting data on those communities, then we're going to just kind of be in the dark for a long time. Mm -hmm. This idea of intersectionality in DEI topics is kind of gets to the point of the next question that I wanted to ask, which is kind of reflecting on the events of this summer, right? After the death of George Floyd and this sort of national and global conversation that we've been having around race and race equity and social justice and the need for change. You know, this conversation is bigger than just race. And we've been talking about it from a race perspective, but it really does hit on all those intersectionalities that you're getting to because there are pieces of all of those communities within the Black community, as you said. And so I'm, I'm very curious what kind of conversations happened in the mayor's office, in the city of Philadelphia, and like what kinds of actions you've seen since some of those things that we've had happen this summer. So I will say that what happened this summer in the very 
kind of beginning of it, the initial riots, I was in my, my other position, my previous position, but then, you know, as those things kind of continued to unwind quite a bit, I had moved over. And so there's a little bit of being insulated against it at the health department because our emergency is public health in the sense of like this looming large scale, like a uh, global crisis. Although my argument internally always and forever will be that public health also encapsulates things like suicidality or gun violence or police brutality, because right. those things affect the public's health. You know, it is not a mystery that the neighborhood I live in, the average age range or the average lifespan is about 67 years old. In Society Hill, the average lifespan is about 88. Okay. And so in a, in a city that has 10 minute drive between those spaces, my life expectancy is different by 20 years. It's not as something as nebulous and like Aaron Brockovich attached as, oh, they're dumping nuclear waste into this area. It's also just things like the number one killer, which is stress. And where does stress come from, right? So these making these connective things around systemic issues is important. But I will say that the, the public health department isn't called upon when there's, you know, riots surrounding the violence that is incurred from the police towards black and brown folks. What I can say is that public health should be a conversation in there, especially with like the killing of Walter Wallace Jr. And recently in October, which was here, he was known to have by everyone on his street, mental health issues. And what do you think happens to people who have been locked inside for going into a year now who already have substantial mental health issues that may be going unmitigated, not because of their intentionality, but because of access to healthcare systems that they may have used. If I'm using a clinic to do my case management around my mental health or around my, my addiction disorder, how is that the, the hours have changed, the wait is longer, I have to have telehealth, but I have no access to telehealth. So these things all do fit together. So yeah, I, I couldn't tell you what the initial reaction was in the mayor's office. Being in the mayor's office was very different than being in the public health department because in the public health department, I'm sitting with a lot of people who are like, we have to make this better and don't really think about the politics of it. I would love if we had people in elected positions or administrative positions that are doing our governance to relinquish how does this look and start to think more critically of how do I communicate the hard thing? That's different. People mind being shut out. They don't mind being informed. But being informed means you have to stand in front of people and be yelled at sometimes, you know, and figure out what's the language we can use to make what has to happen consumable and understandable and make people part of it. This kind of, you know, this kind of speaks to communication a little bit because we're talking about like, how do you communicate decisions that you make and how do you communicate things that are going on? And Helen and I actually, we were talking about how some of the things that have happened this summer, and these aren't, I mean, these aren't new things, sadly, right? They're, they're things that happen every year, all the time. It's just one big moment in time where we all sort of collectively had this moment to reflect on it, maybe because we were at home because of COVID, but we all started to recognize that we have a part to play in the change that needs to happen, or I think more people recognize that they have a part to play in the change that needs to happen. And one of the things that we talked about was it's sort of been easier to talk about because we have new shared language, language that probably people who are DEI experts like yourself have had all along, but there's starting to be this shared language where people who are not DEI experts like myself 
can recognize and start to come along with that communication and talk about bias openly and, and be more involved in that conversation. I'm curious if, if you've seen that in your work or in anything in the last kind of few months. I've seen a lot of people be really hungry to know more than a passing level of mm -hmm like passing in the night level of information. And so that's really exciting for me because, and, and also one of the things that I saw is that between the election cycles, it seemed like there was a strong conversation in a, in a larger scale, at least on a, a particular level. And I'm not saying it's perfect, where people started to say, we have to talk about each other's issues, right? There has been a lot of people saying, I have been working on women's rights for all this time. And I just, it really has just dawned on me that I need to figure out specifically women of color's issues, right? Or I need to think about immigrant women's issues or immigrant women of color's issues or women with disabilities issues and women of color with disabilities issues. And so that has been very inspiring to see that people are interested. I do hope that it continues. I hope it's not just people doing it because it's like, you know, the, the taste of the the year, you know, this is like, mm, like, this is what we're all ordering. Like this, is, it's like mm, intersectionality and oat milk. This is the year. Like, I don't want it to be like that. I hope that people are really invested for the long term because I see a lot of DEI positions coming up. I see a lot of people suddenly having, I mean, like architecture firms being like, we need a DEI expert. And I'm like, what is the true buy-in here? Are you doing it to cover yourself for the potentiality of kind of like the drag or are you actually looking like sitting up and being like, oh my goodness, we're not hiring black architects. And that really affects how we design worlds. I think it's both, right? I think in some spaces, as you mentioned, you know, numbers don't lie or numbers have to show up to speak to certain people and, and to influence. And in the same way, I, I think, and I'll just, you know, go out on a limb, right? I think in some spaces, DEI has been monetized and or it's certainly people realize the risk of not doing. And so sometimes when they don't have the acuity and the awareness within, they'll outsource because we can, you know, short circuit and kind of get to it, identify where we're most weak and like plug holes and strengthen. And hopefully somewhere along the way, hearts and minds will change as well. And it'll be less of like, you know, a bottom line thing for sure. But in anything that's important to anybody, it has to mean something. And like for DEI, like I'm okay with getting in the window or the door of an establishment or of a heart and mind through, you know, something that may align to your kind of interests and values that may not align to mine or might not be the North Star of true DEI work, but I've got your attention, right? I totally appreciate the trendiness of it all. I also think like in an optimistic way, it speaks to our country in particular's maturity level that we can recognize polarity and we can we can hold opposites in both hands and go they're they're both they're both true mm -hmm. right and also see the truth and and what other people present and not think it's an affront to what we've been told or taught and be able to you know sit down and be self-reflective and and see how we can actually be there for not only ourselves, but for the people to the left and right of us to, you know, to uplift. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting when we, when we start talking about companies, like getting involved and wanting to like, think about DEI issues. Oftentimes one of the initial 
actions that HR professionals take is all related to our hiring practices, right? Like we set quotas or we decide for how many promotions should we have? Let's have pipeline and succession planning and talk about representation. And it's interesting because this actually takes me back to an interview that I read from you, Evan, in 2019. You had this, what I thought was a powerful statement where you said too often, powers that be are making decisions about people without having those people represented in the room. It's like a challenge, but also a, a win in a way that representation is sometimes the hardest thing. Like you just, you need to get people in the room, in the board, and you need to have the representation there, but you also have to support them, listen to their voice, make sure they're included, make sure that we're actually including them in those decisions. It, it can't just be just get one, right? That's, it's a big problem. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this representation problem. And like, is it, is that our first step? Is inclusion the first step? Like, where do we, where do we balance that? Oh, it's like one of those things I end up in two minds about it because I totally understand people doing what they're, what they're capable of, right? What they feel safe with. I've, I've never lived, even in my advocacy and activism years, as one of the people who berated. I'm just, I'm just too gentle and sensitive of a soul, you know? I have a very old school Southern mother who, you know, as I, when I was growing up, I think about this thing that she would say to me all the time, Evan, you know, you need to cut like a river, not like a knife. So when I'm thinking about the work that I want to be doing in thinking about that saying, I often think about like, I have to meet people where they are. And then I have to kind of mold and nudge as much as that sometimes can suck. And so that's a lot of what we need to be talking about. So I get why people start with something like put one person in the room, right? Then we're going to put two people in the room and then we're just kind of going to go like that. But I do think in order to get the most honest changes, you have to kind of endeavor to, and you have to risk a lot and say, I'm going to, I'm going to do it all. And that's not as simple as like, we're going to put some people on a board or we're going to promote some people or we're going to put one person in every room. It's kind of like an all. And you also have to think about structural things too, and then sticking to those structural things. So it's not as simple as like doing competency trainings. Research has shown that competency trainings kind of do little to nothing without systemic change. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I do a competency training in your office, but I don't around gender expansiveness and I don't create a, a sexual harassment policy that includes gender expansiveness, then that competency training was a little bit for naught because when somebody who is non-binary or somebody who is trans comes to you with an issue that very much is an issue related to sexual harassment, but your policy doesn't reflect it, but we all have that competency training, where do we land? And it creates a sense of, I, th I feel like a lot of people who are marginalized in the workplace constantly end up kind of falling onto that, that rock or, or those kind of jagged rocks in the scenario where they, they go to this competency training, it's either, it either goes well or it doesn't go well. And they're either invigorated or at least know that their company's endeavoring this conversation. But then when they come with a real issue and they're like, well, three months ago, we had this training and they, are, they told all of us that this is, this is sexual harassment for a non-binary person. This is sexual harassment for a trans person. I'm telling you, it's happening to me. And the company kind of is like, yeah, but per our policy. So I think you have to kind of risk and endeavor it all to have real substantial change. But it, I don't think we can simply say just like, we're going to throw three women at that and walk away, you know, or we're going to throw two, two brown people at that and walk away. 
and I would also hope because those people end up exhausted too as you know that's that's the other thing is that fatigue around this issue is really really real but I also understand people having to wade into water slowly because it is hard and people are really scared of pushback. People are really scared of inflaming folks who don't get it or who are aligned against it. I have one sort of last question and it relates to the people right now. You know, you said that there's a lot of people who are thirsty and interested and want to be involved in this space and to you know, help where they can or recognize their place. I, I kind of feel like I'm one of those people, right? Like I don't quite know everything that I can do to help. I don't quite feel like I have a whole lot of power, but I also want to find ways to do what I can do and recognize my own privilege and, and use it for highlighting other people's voices. And so I'm, it kind of relates to this allyship, right? Like there's the difference between allyship and accompliceship. And I'm curious your thoughts around this, like how you see those as different and like what suggestions you have for people who are like, I want to help, but I don't quite know what to do. Yeah. I mean, the, the stark difference between being an ally and being an accomplice is I feel like an ally is somebody who will like go buy the t-shirt, you know, they're like, black lives matter, you know, like love that fashion forward. And that'll create a little bit of disruption in their world, but mostly their world stays intact. I am really, really big on changing things organically, not forcing people to change things. And the way you change things organically is you have to start in these little, little crevices of like individual exchanges and then build out from there in a lot of ways. And also, if you are starting with something more macro, that can't land without those individual exchanges. And so an accomplice is somebody who lives in a space that I don't have access to, who's willing to like risk saying that, risk like challenging their mom while she's finishing making Thanksgiving, and then her deciding to be silent at the Thanksgiving table, right? You gotta, even, even that, you gotta take these risks. An ally is somebody who's gonna like, use the hashtags or, you know, address the issue, but like kind of like dart when it gets dangerous, you know, they'll do the safe thing if they see everybody else doing the safe thing. But I do, I'm at a place where I'm like, I want an accomplice, like go to jail with me. You know what I mean? Matter of fact, go to jail for me. That is really, really profound and powerful because you're putting yourself on the line. It doesn't always have to be your life, but it's really important to recognize that's the difference, right? It's like, I appreciate you wearing that shirt, but it is performative. And it does stop very, very short when we start to look at things like deciding, you know what, if you know that you and that person of color are up for the same promotion and you know they've been passed over twice and they're all, they are truly the more talented person, it's you stepping into your boss's office and your boss is really, really championing you get the promotion. It's you saying like, I would love to make more money. I would love for the, to have this promotion, but I'm not the most deserving party. I'm not the person though. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave you with no options but them because this, this is their job. Wow. I love that final part from Evan. The real difference between an ally and an accomplice. It's not only about the genuineness of your actions, but also the level of personal sacrifice that you are willing to make for the cause. I think this is the real turning point that we're seeing in this movement toward equality. Every one of us needs to understand our part in the change that's needed. We can no longer say that we're just an ally, but not be willing to be vulnerable any longer. 
for too long, many of us, myself included, that have privilege, have sat on the sidelines and cheered on a cause for more inclusion that we believe in, but never realized that the change wasn't needed from those that were marginalized. The change was needed from us, from me, those with privilege and power. And I, I don't wanna be an ally anymore. I want to be an accomplice for change. Oh, this was such a great interview, and I'm so happy to have learned from Evan's expertise. So many more great interviews to come this season, and some of this season is going to be heavy. You're probably or hopefully going to be forced to reflect on where you can personally make a difference in the changes that are needed for more inclusion, not only in our organizations, but in our world. Reflection is something that we'll dive into on our next episode. So stay tuned to the blog and social for when that episode drops. All right, everyone, remember, whatever you are drinking, coffee, tea, or something a little bit stronger, we hope it will lead you to fresh brewed ideas that will help make work better for all of us. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of HRT. As your thoughts from today's episode, Steve, share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag VillanovaHRT. That's hashtag VillanovaHRTEA. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University and for all the links and notes from today's episode, visit the Villanova HRD blog at VillanovaHRD.com.